0: That Psalm 23 is one of the most well-known, as also also most appreciated texts in Scripture. Even as we sung, just the reminder that the Lord is our Shepherd, and He'll take care of us. He knows our situation. He'll provide for us and minister to us according to our various needs. And it's awful to be reminded, even as we look at uh, the Gospel of Mark turning your bibles to mark chapter 12 that the shepherd that spoke of in psalm 23 is the one who's being confronted by the religious leaders real and so again let's look at mark 12 and i'll be reading verses 13 through 17 then they came sorry then they sent some of the pharisees and herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you're not partial to any. But teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. How should a Christian engage politics? What sort of boundaries should we line up and wrestling through this tension of what authority the church has and the authority of the state. Should there be a separation from church and state, or should they be united? And if so, if they should be separated, how should they be separated? Again, what are those boundaries? Now, these questions have been asked by Christians really from the beginning of Christianity, from Christ's emergence Upon the earth, and they were asked by, to some extent, governments even before that. And if you could throw all of these questions that are asked about the tension between the church and the state into a pot and boil the essence of what the right answer would be down into a singular phrase, I think what we would come to is Jesus' answer to the Pharisees' question here Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God that which is God's. The main point of the passage before us here, though, is that these men who are confronting Jesus were hypocrites. And what this passage will show is how horribly hypocritical they actually were. And so this passage is meant to draw out their hypocrisy and really contrast them in light of what true devotion to God looks like, both in Christ's character and in His response to their question. And their hypocrisy is seen in their attempt to trap Jesus and in their flattery and really the the worldly nature of the question they ask Him. But again, Jesus' answer to their question really gets down to the fundamental reason for their hypocrisy. The reason they were hypocrites is because they didn't want to give God what is God? They were hard-hearted in their rebellion against Him, though they were somewhat unaware of that. As you recall, this section of Mark uh, really runs from roughly chapters 11 through chapter 13, and in Mark chapter 12 we have this parable of the tenants, and that that parable really illustrates the heart. This section, 11 through 13, is all about the conflict of Jesus with the religious leaders. So you have this illustration at the beginning of chapter 12 of the leaders' animosity towards Christ. And then the rest of this chapter just demonstrates their hard heartedness. You have an illustration, and then you have a demonstration of hard heartedness seen in their three attempts to trap Jesus with their questions. And it's important to recognize that none of these questions that they asked are asked sincerely. They're all attempts to trap Christ, to cause him to stumble in some way. But let's look at this first question they present to him and notice how hypocritical their question really is. 13, that word hypose, it's actually a Greek word, hippocrotes, um, which means to act as if on stage. It was, a, it was a word that described acting, it, it, it sometimes translated to put on a mask, because actors at that time would put on masks to demonstrate the characters of who they were. Webster's Dictionary defines the term this way, of feigning to be what one is not or to believe what one does not. So it's faking. And especially, it says, the false assumption of an appearance of virtue or religion. So it's pretending to have a kind of virtue or pretending to believe something to be religious when in one's heart they really are not. And the actors in the story before us, were told immediately, are the Pharisees and the Herodians. And this, Putting those two groups together tells us, first of all, one element of their hypocrisy, and that is that they're compromisers. Because the Pharisees and the Herodians didn't agree on hardly anything at all. But here we see them working together as a unit in order to take down Christ. The Herodians really were the political enemies of the Pharisees. They were, you could think of the, the liberal compromising Jews. They were in league with the Romans. They wanted to be with those who were in power. Thus, they're called the Herodians because Herod was kind of a puppet king of the Romans and was willing to compromise whatever principle necessary in order to hold on to power. Well, the Herodians were fully in league with that, fully supporting of that. On the opposite end, you have the ultra-conservative Jews led by the Pharisees. And they were such rigid law observers, such dedicated Jews, such dedication to the law that they made laws in order to protect those other those laws from being broken. So they had a series of laws that were just developed simply to avoid any violation of the original commandments. And so just to kind of picture what what's really going on here, this would be like Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump getting together in order to take down some well known evangelical leader. And that's how this would read to the first-century audience. That's insane. That makes no sense. One of them is compromising, and they're both compromising big time. And that's really what is happening. But it also shows their animosity to Christ, and their fear of him. And that's the reason for their unlikely partnership. They want to take Christ down. That's their aim. We see it in the ver- that first verse, verse thirteen. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to trap him in a statement. And that, that's their aim, to trap him. The word trap is actually the same word that's used to trap a wild animal. Now, a hunter, when they go to set a trap, they don't do that accidentally. There is a they want to catch game. So there's there's no they're, they're not just accidentally causing tries. there's they want to take him down setting a snare for him. And we know that the question they ask is a trap because Mark goes out of his way to tell us it's a trap. But also anybody who's familiar with the gospel of Mark so far would recognize that what they say to Jesus doesn't line up with everything we've seen from them so far. From the very beginning of his public ministry, they've opposed him. And so it says they came to him and ask, Teacher, we know that you're truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. This just further demonstrates their hypocrisy because it's just pure, undiluted flattery. They don't mean a word of what they're saying, the way they describe Christ. You know, as you know, flattery just means insincere or excessive praise. And the Pharisees and Herodians are being both insincere in their praise and excessive. And their flattery is so dripping with hypocrisy, it feels one, makes one feel dirty just looking at the words on a page. I mean, it is sick how insincere this is. I mean, another um, word picture for flattery, sometimes it's described as honeyed words because it's just thick with sweetness this flattery just like it's thick like honey but it's disgusting. You wouldn't want to touch it. It's more like tree sap that sticks to you and makes you feel dirty. But what's interesting about this is what they say about Jesus is actually spot on. They they rightly explain what Jesus is he defers to no one. He's not partial to any. And he teaches the way of God in truth. Let's look at those terms. He's truthful. By saying he's truthful, they mean that he tells the truth, obviously. But that, but he, he rightly divides the word. He's not twisting the scriptures in order to further his own personal agenda. And he's always done. There's no attempt at deception in his teaching unlike his questioners. They say also that he defers to no one. That means that he doesn't court anyone's favor. He's not He's not like a politician who's will say something in order to get the women's vote or to get the gay vote or to get the Roman vote or to get the Jews vote. He's not trying to placate anybody in his teaching. He just tells it how it is. They say he's not partial. This is interesting. The Greek literally says, and it is not a concern to you about anyone because you do not see the face of men. That is, he doesn't make his responses to people or evaluate people just upon people's appearances. So he's not, he's not drawn to the wealthy any more than he's drawn to the poor or vice versa. He treats all men and women alike, whether they're outcasts or princes. Whether they're thieves or scribes, whether they're adulterers, as we've seen, or whether they're family members. Christ isn't partial to anybody. Again, because he's not seeking to serve his own agenda, but the father's agenda. They say he teaches the way of God true. Again, he's not twisting the scriptures, but actually explaining them as they were always intended to be understood. Christ isn't giving no in any. New isn't changing any doctrines, but illuminating what the Old Testament always was intended how it was always intended to be understood before it got corrupted through various false teachings. So he's truthful, he defers to no one, he's not partial to any, and he teaches the way of God and truth. Again, this is like an incredibly accurate description of Christ's ministry. I mean, it's ready to be inserted into a creed or a doctrinal statement. This is a great description of Christ. But there's no sincerity and no honesty in this description of him. But it's not what they say that's the problem, right? It's the fact that there is no sincerity again just tells us that one can be extremely orthodox, can give the right answer. They can teach the Bible accurately and still be a hard-hearted unbeliever. It's not what a person says that matters, but rather their heart. And notice that they're the antithesis of how they describe Jesus. They're not truthful. (laughs) They're ready to twist scriptures. Um, they certainly don't believe what they're saying about Jesus here. They're, we've already seen they're completely. De- their decisions are completely determined on what other people think. Um, throughout this section, it's, it's referred to their fear of man. They're wholly consumed with outward appearance. I mean, they could hardly be more partial than they are. And clearly, the teachings are not expositions of the word of God, but they're. The teachings of the commandments of men. Jesus says in Matthew 15, 7 through 9, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So, I mean, these guys are the poster boys of hypocrisy. And in fact, throughout history, they've kind of when you hear the word hypocrite, frequently people will think of the Pharisees, because, at least if they've had some sort of biblical education. But even though their question is asked without an ounce of sincerity, it's still a good question. At least it's a good question for us to know how to answer. It's a question that we need to understand and grasp. Because at its heart, it defines what genuine worship really looks like. Jesus' answer to this question really is the counterpoint to their hypocrisy. And that's why I've divided this passage up into looking at the the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and then we'll look at genuine devotion based upon how Christ answers the question. Let's look at the question first. The question they ask is essentially just about paying a poll tax. Now, the, the, the poll tax was just a general tax. In fact, The word census is based upon the Greek word for poll tax here, and the the way it worked is you would take a, a ruler would take a census, and based upon the numbers that they got back, they would determine how much money, how much income they can generate from the population. So they're asking, do they have to pay this tax based upon a census to the emperor? Now this this tax was objectionable to the Jews for two reasons. The first reason was because in paying the tax it was a sign of subjection to an earthly power that wasn't God that wasn't God appointed. it was a, it was a way of acknowledging um, it, Caesar is their ruler rather than God. The second reason was because it, the Denarius, which was what was used to pay the tax, had the picture of the emperor upon it. And in the inscription, it actually stated, Augustus, son of the divine one, which was clearly blasphemous to the Jews. And so the question was, if you're paying this tax, are you actually supporting blasphemy? Because you're paying the tax, are you not blaspheming yourself just in paying the tax? Or at least supporting such sin? So is it lawful? And that's what they they ask, is it lawful to pay this tax? Now, when they ask, is it lawful? They're not. They're not asking is it judicially lawful, or they're not asking a question of legality per se. What they're asking is if a Jew should pay this in light of his relationship with God. It's really more of a religious question than a legal question. Obviously, those who established the laws, the Romans, would say, yes, you need to pay the tax. That's not what they're getting at. It's can one pay the tax and be a genuine worshiper of God? or are they being a hypocrite if they pay the tax? that's that's the nature of the question. So if Jesus would have said, no, you don't have to pay it well then they would the, these religious leaders would have warrant to arrest him because what he would be teaching was treason. we actually see that explicitly made stated in luke twenty three two if he would have said, yes, you need to pay the tax, this would undermine his reputation with the crowds. And this is the tension. Is Jesus going to placate the crowds or is he going to placate the Romans in order to avoid getting thrown into prison? They think they got him. are he going to bow to? You can't make both happy why this group of men would have thought the question was such a difficult one to answer because the Herodians, they wanted to make the Romans happy because if the Romans were unhappy with them, they lose their power. The Pharisees wanted to make the Romans happy not because they cared about what the Romans thought, but if the Romans were unhappy, then they too would lose their power. But they also wanted to, they, they feared the crowds. So did the Herodians. And th- so both groups of people felt this tension between wanting to keep the crowds happy as well as their overlords happy. So as they understood the conflict, even within their own souls, they thought, well, he's going to feel the conflict as well. But actually, Jesus shows that this is actually not a very difficult question to answer if one rightly understands the law. It's a sneaky trap, but it's only a trap to a person whose mind and heart is set upon power, popularity, or if they really believe that Jesus was the way they described Him to be in verse fourteen, they would realize this is not a difficult question for Jesus to ask. It's rather simple, and it's easy for Jesus to answer because His heart was fully devoted to the Father, as He demonstrates in verses sixteen and seventeen. So let's look at those verses as we look at Christ's devotion. They brought one said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. So Jesus' response to the question gets right to the point. Notice the question he asked. Whose image or whose likeness is on? same Greek word that's used in the Septuagint in Genesis 1.26, where man is stated to be made in the image and likeness of God. So Jesus is making, very purposely, a subtle contrast here. Caesar's image is on the denarius, the Roman coin. So he can lay claim and ownership to that coin because his image is on it. But God's image is on humanity. So he can lay claim to each individual life. You're saying give to each their due. And so Jesus answered their question by really getting to the heart of it. And really he bursts through their trap, but he also exposes why they thought their question was such an entrapping question. Again, it's only a, a challenging question if you don't want to give away any of your money. And again, remember that Jesus said in John 6:38. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then, of course, you have the Pharisees being described as those who are lovers of money. And I I want to draw out their, their affection and love of money because I do think that's one of the emphasis Mark is bringing out. And the reason I say that is you've already heard the temple being described as a marketplace, right, earlier in Mark, in Mark 11, and then you have at the very end of this section in chapter 12, you have a, a very interesting story about Jesus's in, Jesus's observation of a widow who gives in all that she has, just two copper coins. And it would make you makes you ask the question: Well, if this section 11 through 13 is all about conflict with the religious leaders, why is that story there? What's the point? The point is she understands what real worship looks like, even in how she views her money. The Pharisees didn't. They had a love for money, which is demonstrated in the question they asked, but it's also demonstrated in what's going on in the temple. And that's contrasted with this widow. So this is an easy question for Jesus to answer because he has no problem giving to Caesar what he demands. He not only will willingly give up his money, he will give up his life. And he's ready to submit to all the demands of earthly authorities, unless, of course, they ask him to sin in some way. It's interesting, 1 Peter chapter 2 says, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter's description of Christ in that way is written to people who are undergoing persecution by the Roman government. And he's saying, look to what Christ did. He submitted completely, even when he was treated unjustly. He's your example. So Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Submit to Caesar, in other words. This is the point that, that we see is that Submitting to Caesar is not in conflict with one's submission to God. Those two are not in conflict, unless, of course, Caesar's asking them to sin. Paul draws this out in Romans 13. That's why we had it for the Scripture reading today. In fact, go ahead and go back there. Romans 13. Let's just read how how much this is in line. Really, it's almost an exposition of what Christ says here. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, God what is God's. Romans 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Give to Caesar what Caesar is Caesar's. There's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority is opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but of evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what's good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for your good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is the minister of God, and drew brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. In other words, submitting to earthly authorities has to do with our heart. If we're not in submitting to our authorities, our conscience is going to be violated. Four, or, verse 6, because of this you also pay taxes for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, but notice he doesn't stop there. Custom to whom customs due, fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor is due. So the implication of what Jesus says here is that we need to give earthly authorities there do and this goes again beyond taxes but to showing honor and respect as well so when we submit to earthly authorities that's that's not in conflict to submitting to scripture unless of course they're asking us to sin and then of course we would say no just like the apostles did when they were confronted by the Sanhedrin, same group of people who were confronting Christ here, and they were told to stop preaching in Jesus' name. When we read in Acts 5.29, this is how they responded. We must obey God rather than men. But unless earthly authorities are directing us to sin, we should seek to meet the expectations of those who are established as authority over us. All of us should. Unless they're asking us to sin. So we need to pay our taxes. We need to give our employers diligent labor. And and we also need to respect the time clock. If they say, get here at 8 o'clock, we need to be there at 8 o'clock. In fact, we should be there 10 minutes early. We need to follow school rules. And we need to give our teachers proper respect. We need to follow dress codes. In fact, this would be a great verse to defend why you want to have a dress code. Give to Caesar. Give to... The school, what the school expects. Give to God what God expects. In giving to Caesar, you're showing you're submitting to God. So seek to meet your parents' expectations as well as your husband's expectations. We need ministry leaders also. So if the leader of the nursery says, you know, you can't bring pocket knives to the nursery to let kids play with. And you might say, Well, well I'm from Tennessee and we only eat with pocket knives or <laughs> something. Right. Well, you might you want you still need to be in subjection to that. So our willingness to follow our leaders demonstrates our worship to God. And this is this is important to draw out. Hypocrites are the ones who Fresh submission as an expression of worship to God. Hypocrites hate submission because they love domination. They want to be in control. Christians understand God is sovereign over all, and so demonstrate their trust in God through submitting to earthly authorities. And this really is one of the clearest marks of being a genuine believer, is you will submit to earthly authorities. proves that you're not a hypocrite because it proves that you no longer live for yourself what you want but rather to God. The way we respond to our authorities really gets to the heart of do we bo- do we really seek to worship God or are we just trying to get what we want and get away with what we can? One of the clearest expressions of hypocrisy is a lack of submission to leaders. clearest demonstration of genuine worship is submitting, especially when you don't want it, especially when you disagree. Of course, unless they're asking you to sin, which really again gives another opportunity to say, "No, I'm going to submit to Christ." And this really brings us to the second part of Jesus' statement, which I think is the most important part when He says, "Give to God what is God." And this gets to the heart of the issue: seek. Christians can give to Caesar what is Caesar's because they recognize everything they own is God. They're all—it's all His. They've been bought with a price. Everything they own is His. And again, this is this this reality, this theological truth, is powerfully displayed in the story of the widow who gives her few copper coins, the last of what she owns, at the end of this chapter. And again, the reason that story is there. Is it focuses upon the religious leaders in contrast her devotion? Again, they turn they turn the temple of God into a marketplace, and they look for excuses not to pay taxes. She joyfully gives even out of her poverty because she fully trusts that God will take care of her. It's an amazing contrast. God has. this passage that we're looking at presents a picture of hypocrisy and then this exhortation of what true devotion to God looks like. I mean, it's it's remarkable that Jesus praises this woman who gives out of her poverty, gives money to the religious establishment, which will then use that money Crucify Christ. Christ praises this woman for her devotion, not because she's supporting a a corrupt authority, but because where her heart's at. And so there's lots of, you know, that question often comes up. Well, should I give to a corrupt authority if I don't have to? Again, it really gets to the heart. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Are you seeking to worship God? Jesus praises her, even though these people are completely corrupt. And the reality is, you're never going to find a, a sinless institution. If, if our excuse was, "Well, I'm only going to give to those institutions that meet my standard of righteousness," you're never going to give to anybody, because you're not going to find anybody. The only the only person who's free of right there is no institution free of sin. The only person who's free from sin was Christ. So that's not a good standard either, and which is why we demonstrate our trust in giving to authorities over us when necessary. It shows that we truly trust God's sovereignty over all things. Again, this passage j- pictures just the, the, the hideousness of hypocrisy as we see the Pharisees and the Herodians in contrast what true devotion looks like with this exhortation. Give to God what is God. And I think really what should stand out to each one of us is we, we should be sobered by this picture of hypocrisy. How threatening hypocrisy actually is, particularly within religious institutions. I recently came across this story in a book that was written uh, in the 1800s. And it was a recounting of a, of a pastor's visit with a young lady. And this young lady had grown up in a godly home. She would received a great education. Um, She had a a good grasp of the Bible and was able to apply the Bible to all different areas of the Christian life. She was known for her diligent service. And yet, when tragedy struck, it it exposed some, some painful things. This pastor writes that in one year, the young lady lost both her pious parents, And she had just put off mourning when she was taken desperately ill. Having been on terms of intimacy with the family, I was sent for her at her request to visit this dying sister. I certainly went prepared to see a Christian die. But what was my astonishment to behold those features, instead of smiling in death as I expected, clothed in the horrors of mental agony. And bidding me to sit down and ascertaining that there was no witnesses, she addressed me in nearly these terms. I'm glad you are come. This is what she says. I'm glad you are come. I cannot bear to go out of the world a deceiver, but I am unable to tell the sad secret of my heart to those about me. It would be too much for them to hear. I am not the character my friends have supposed. I'm not religious. Don't interrupt me. I have talked about religion my passions have often felt the powers of the world to come, and my ina- imagination roved at large among things unseen. I have amused myself with these matters and regarded with the interest, regarded them with the interest of an amateur. On their effects upon my mind, I have reckoned of an inferior order, though ennobled by a birth from heaven. But amidst all, my own heart has never loved religion as a personal thing. Indeed, I have never concerned myself about it for myself, and now I must die without any of its prospects and be shut out forever from all its enjoyments. Sober words. And so the pastor, when he hears that, he, he reminds her, well, there's life, all of life, there's still hope. Life is the season for hope, he says. He he reminds her of the Savior saying, whoever comes to me, I will no wise cast out. And as he says this, she cuts him short, and and she says, The vigor of my youth and the strength of my intellect I have wasted in living to myself. I never cared for the divine approval, and God is justly my adversary. Cast down as I am, I cannot go with a piteous tale of misery to petition for mercy, for which I can plead no services, nor live to show any gratitude. I know already what you would say to these sentiments. You would hold out mercy as yet attainable. But my heart revolts at it. Heaven would be no heaven to me on the terms I can only enter it. I have been a worthless idler and cannot endure to receive the reward of a faithful soldier. And the pastor then writes, Surprised as I was, I endeavored to enforce the necessity of renouncing such ideas and was urging that a good confession, though late, would still find acceptance with God when she then interrupted me again with some energy. No, sir, spare me. Spare yourself. My character's finished. I am that I shall be forever. The tree is even now falling, and it is too late to direct where its trunk shall be extended upon the earth. then he says, And then the doctor came in, and I soon after took my leave, intending to renew my visit. But in the morning I learned that the young lady had expired in the night. And I know that you're used to more positives at the end of sermons. But there is nothing positive about hypocrisy. And that's why I include it here. It is a very noticed that during the course of the revival known as the Great Awakening, that of all sinners, it was nominal Christians who were the most resistant to the gospel. They had drunkards and prostitutes and adulterers crying out for God for mercy. Many people were saved during the Great Awakening but those who resisted were typically those who had grown up in the church. And he stated that while will such immense multitudes and a large proportion from all ages and conditions in life were powerfully wrought upon and driven to seek refuge from the wrath to come, unconverted professors stood alone unmoved. That should sober every person here. Even if you're saved, it should sober you for those who are here who might not be. It is a dangerous thing to go to church and not be repentant, to not As you've heard, the same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. The same truths that melt a believer's heart to worship harden a hypocrite's heart. This is the point. The danger for hypocrisy in the church is immense. We should be as concerned about hypocrisy in our own hearts as the Chinese are concerned about the coronavirus. See, because hypocrisy won't just kill you, it will damn you. And there is only one antidote for hypocrisy. And Jesus gives it here. Give to God what is God. He created you. He has designed you to live for Him. His image is stamped upon you. You are made in His likeness. He belong, You belong to Him. And He deserves your full worship. Again, that's what He's created you for. He wants you to worship Him with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, to live solely for Him. That's what it means to be a believer. Not that you would do that perfectly, but the trajectory of your life moves from living to yourself and living for Him. And that's why you read the Word and that's why you go to church. Not because doing those things saves you, but because you want to no longer live for yourself but to live for Him. You believe in His grace and His mercy and therefore you repent. And if you have not yet fully submitted your life to Christ, do it now. Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the time. Because if you are still resistant to live fully for Christ, you are in extremely grave danger of having your heart hardened through hypocrisy. Because what more can He say than to you that He's already said? What more can He say to demonstrate His willingness to save you than by pointing to Christ upon the cross? What more can He say of the benefits of salvation than you've already seen in other believers, than you've already read in His Word. And if still you are resistant to embracing that offer of salvation, when do you think you would be better served to embrace it? If you've not yet fully submitted your life to Christ, do it now, lest your heart continue to be hardened through hypocrisy. When you look back on your life 10, 15, 20 years from now or however long when you're on your deathbed do you want to do you want to be ready to pass into eternity knowing I was one of the best hypocrites ever? I had them all fooled. Like this young lady we, we read about. And at that time so hardened there is not an ounce of desire for the gospel. Or do you want to be able to especially need to be concerned if we find ourselves manifesting the following system symptoms. So not just those who are unbelievers and hypocrites in the depths of their soul that need to be concerned about hypocrisy. All believers need to be concerned about it. Especially if we find ourselves drifting towards a pattern of hypocrisy in our life rather than sincere worship. And so here are just some things I thought of, of signs of hypocrisy, or drifting towards false conversion. Beware of a willingness to compromise principles. We saw that in the Pharisees and Herodians. Now, compromise isn't always a bad thing. Sometimes it's necessary. But when a person is willing to compromise their fundamental principles because they just want to have their own will achieved, that's a big red flag. Because no longer are you being driven by Scripture or God wants. You're being driven by what you want. That is antithetical to Christianity. Beware of the fear of man. Again, that's how the Pharisees and the Rhodians made their decisions. Whether it's what the Romans wanted or what the crowds wanted. Our example isn't them. Our example is Christ. Beware of the fear of man. If we're driven by what people, rather than biblical principles, we are going to find it very easy to compromise those principles. Again, it said, live for them rather than God. Beware of slipping into deception. This is something, again, we all need to be wary of. Because when we sin, we like to cover it up. We don't want people to see us for what we really are. But we need to recognize when we're doing that, we are we are actually drifting towards hypocrisy. So what do we do when we sin if we're not supposed to deceive and cover it up and hide it? We're honest about it. We just own up. And you know what? If we're honest about our sin, there's going to be a lot of owning up to do, right? Because we do it a lot. And yeah, that may mean that, you know, the person sitting next to you might not think of highly as you, but would you want people believing a lie? Really? Or do you want them to know the truth of who you are? And the more honest you are about your sin, the more help, the more grace, the more love, the more support you're going to get. Because you're going to be relying upon grace rather than just fleshly willpower. And if you found yourself caught up in certain sins, especially sins that you want to hide away, you don't want people to know about, and especially if they're becoming addictive, that's probably in indicated, it's indicative of you're a hypocrite. When you deceive, you're relying upon your own powers to overcome sin. So just own up to that. Be honest. You're struggling with pornography? Tell your wife. You're struggling with lying? You're struggling with stealing stuff from work? Tell your boss. Own up to it. Struggling with stealing time? You're wasting time. You're you're watching puppy videos on YouTube rather than writing whatever is necessary for your work. You're wasting company money. You know, you say you go to McDonald's for lunch, but you're really going to Ruth Chris. Be honest about it. And in being honest, God will provide grace. So beware of slipping into deception. Also beware of the danger of wanting to win arguments versus persuading people to the truth. Right? The Pharisees are asking these questions not because they're wanting to clarify God's will. They just want to win. Right, and this, this desire just to win, to be right, rather than to do right, is, a, is indicative that you don't care about the truth. You just care about winning. You care about being on top. People thinking highly of you.